Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode number 195 of the ETPHD team podcast with myself and Rosalind. Hi Rosalind, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? Great, I am great, thank you. Freezing, but great. And Anna, how are you? I am good, thank you. Great! Anything wild? Anything wild to discuss today? Do you know what? I've got something exciting I'm trying at the weekend. Well, I say exciting. I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> what is it? Uh, there's like a cryotherapy thing open nearby. Mm. So I'm going to go and give it a try just because they've got an introductory offer. And I thought, oh, wh- why not go and freeze myself for a few minutes? That's that's a you thing, Rose, right? You like that. Yeah, yeah. I love like, is it choir therapy, do you say? Mm. Oh, no. oh, my yoga teacher training. We got a whole day with an embody- embodied voice trainer. No, hold on. Hold on. You said oh. choir therapy. You said cryotherapy. Cryo. Cryo. What's interesting oh. is that? <laughs> I thought that's what you said. And I thought, surely there's no such thing as choir therapy. And then you went at yoga. And I thought, there is. Okay, there we've, is. We've, got, we've gone on a separate, separate thing here. No, no, I'm going in an ice box, Ross. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. I also enjoy that as well. So, yeah. I've been doing 11 minutes. I'm on my third week of 11 uh, no, 11 minutes on average across the week so I do two minutes a day oh <laughs> a week wow. in four four to six degrees plunge pool wow and, and people, people keep asking me like do you notice the difference and I was like I don't really know but then yesterday I didn't do it and like I also had a really busy day so I could just feel myself building up like building like this like feeling but then I was like I don't know if I like this as in, do I have to go in an ice bath now to relieve this feeling of pressure? But like, I went and taught yoga last night, so like that relieved me in a different way. Um, Interesting. It just sets me like I do the ice bath, and then like I come in, and I do find that I meditate a bit better. I don't know if it just like relieves a bit of like physical sensations in my body, so that then I can be a bit more drop into my body a bit quicker. Maybe. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I guess I don't know a huge amount about it like I know there's some little bits of research around it and I understand the the premise of like it forces you to be present and I mean it's certainly immersive in in all ways interesting I I'm just freezing my tits off all the time at the moment the idea of getting into an ice bath makes me want to die um but very much respect to you for doing it I've noticed since I've been back from Austin so I've only been back for like just like under a week and I was going to yoga like really good hot yoga classes like three times a week there and so since I've been back I went to one in, on Friday morning and I hadn't done a yoga class until today I just did 20 minutes in my living room and I know I kept noticing it was really interesting that I'm not breathing into my I'm not breathing even when I'm meditating like I'll do a couple of deep breaths when I'm meditating and then I'll go back into my normal breath but because I'm very busy and running around 
and I have not been doing yoga and even when I've been meditating because of jet lag I'm not I'm kind of in and out of consciousness a little bit even when I'm awake I my breath has completely gone off it feels like it's just not your breath can't be dysregulated but it's not consistent so I'm having to sit at my computer and be like okay take a deep belly breath in and like really be intentional with it so then I just did some yoga today and I was like oh I actually feel like I've got space in my chest again and it's amazing how you get so used to giving your body that space to breathe and that actual physical space to like expand and like breathe into your body that when you stop doing it it's like oh I'm very disconnected and I'm very like shallow and obviously we know if you're shallow breathing that just adds to anxiety and that feeling of dysregulation so it's it's quite cool when you start to notice these things right yeah oh and I've got a fun fun fact that um because in the ice bath you want to just breathe in and out of your nose I suppose in a lot of like yoga as well and breathwork practices and if you look at mammals that breathe throughout their mouth they've got a shorter life expectancy than mammals that breathe nasally so like dogs have got like quite a short life expectancy like 10-15 years and obviously they're always panting and then I can't remember the example was it like elephants or something they are more nasal breathers and they've got a very they've got a longer life expectancy interesting I wonder if that's like an association like a correlation or a causation I mean I guess they can't say it's causation but um if it's like there's a stat that I use with dieting and disordered eating and it's like the number of Nicolas Cage the number of movies Nicolas Cage was in over the course of 10 years directly correlated to the number of people who died in swimming pools across the same time it was wild so it was like oh well he died he was in more films more people died in a swimming pool and it's like well if correlation equals causation then it's like is it Nicolas Cage's fault that all of these people died in swimming pool and then um, so it's interesting, like, I wonder what the what the link is. I'm actually starting a breathwork programme. So I'm going to see. It's like a 21-day breathwork programme. So I'm excited for that. Oh, feedback. I'm terrified of it because it reminds me of having... I've done it once and it reminds me of pan- having a panic attack and I hated it. Yeah, so- I, I did one in Bali and was like, I'm going to go have a panic attack right now. But it, I, it went the other way and I had a breakthrough. And now my boyfriend's going on a Wim Hof retreat this weekend. Oh, really? <laughs> So I'm trying to like encourage him to do a breathwork course and then we could be like a power couple and so oh, nice. <laughs> nice. So I'll keep you on the loop. Okay. Oh great. <laughs> Bring him in. Bring him in to use your PhD. Um okay, Fab, let's get cracking with the questions. Anna, do you want to go first? Yeah, should we stay on meditation? Sure. Topic? My one struggle with meditation is staying awake. If I do more than 10 to 15 minutes, I end up nodding off. It doesn't matter the time of day or how I'm positioned. (laughs) I feel like such an old lady. I will literally nod off, sat up in my chair. Next thing I know, my chin's on my chest. Any tips? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, position and time of day are the two key ones, right? So you've kind of covered those bases. Um, You could try something like a walking meditation instead, so on the ETPHC group yesterday, I did um, a noting meditation, which I really like to do for walking, where you just notice um, sounds, sights, feelings, thoughts, and you don't get lost in them. You just like actually note the word. So you're like sound, thought, feeling, etc. And that's a really nice one to do when you're walking because it's very immersive. You're not getting lost in anything. And it's a really nice way of meditating. And obviously, if you're walking 
I would hope that you're not going to fall asleep when you're walking. Um, so you could try something like that. Or tr- again, like try it. I don't know if you drink caffeine, but try and do it 30 minutes after you've had a cup of coffee or not doing it straight after a big meal um, is another one. N- not doing it in a really warm, comfortable room is another one. Like almost trying to make yourself, you're not going to be uncomfortable, but just an, enough of not comfort, enough of uncomfort to to keep you awake. I don't know, Ros, have you got thoughts? On, on my yoga teacher training, we had to meditate for 45 minutes in the morning but it was literally like 7am in a chalet and we were cold and that was on purpose (laughs) so it was so and we had to they were quite strict we had to be like seated um legs crossed upright because okay it's not the most naturally comfortable position but it's very hard to nod off in that position and as Amelia said having a not a freezing cold house but enough to kind of keep you alert and I say maybe like be kinder to yourself, maybe scale it back to three or four or five minutes. And once you get confident that you can do three to five minutes, then maybe just start with like a minute increase per week, because maybe you're just like jumping in at 10 to 15 and that is just too long and it doesn't need to be that long. Like you'd rather have a good present five minutes than maybe 10 where you're nodding off. Mm. And are you definitely asleep? I feel like that might be a really patronizing question, but like maybe you're just actually in that semi-conscious state and you just, when you do that, your neck, your neck just likes to fall to your chest. <laughs> your chest. I don't know. But like you, there is a point with meditation where like you want to stay aware for sure, but you do cross over into like that kind of semi-conscious place that it doesn't feel like you're awake, but it doesn't feel like you're asleep. Well, it doesn't feel like anything because you're not really thinking about what it feels like which is the, the least sensical statement I've made today. I've a lot. <laughs> One more tip could just be using scent. So either like lighting incense, a candle, or the little roller balls, and maybe use the scent to bring you back in to the moment. So when you feel yourself nodding off, if you can, maybe like smell your wrist or where you put the roller scent to try and bring you back a bit. I am just so here for the way you said scent. I was like, what's the scent? (laughs) (laughs) Took me a while, but I got there. Um, Okay, Rosalind question. So this comes from one of George's clients. I read the post about how casual relationships could possibly trigger emotional eating. I get that, but what if you friends that trigger that behavior? It made me think about some friends that are constantly yo-yo dieting, counting macros, they can't show themselves about makeup. I realize I've been emotionally eating after or during hanging out with them. I think I'm comparing, feeling guilt or shame over my own body. If they're dieting, then so should I because I'm in a bigger body. I have more flaws in my skin. How do I cope with this? Oh, great question. And not uncommon. I actually think mm-hmm. I did a post on this recently about how to manage things if people around you are struggling, like if p- other people's habits are triggering you I think I posted it anyway or I dreamed that I did in which case I will do that post so look on my Instagram but I think I did do it um so it's less about it's less on the same wavelength as like the kind of dating side of things because that was more in relation to yes your self-esteem and your self-worth but also it was more to do with like if like your predominantly your predominant co-regulators are triggering in some way um that might be why you struggle with your 
eating habits. I can't get my words out. Um, realistically, I think there's a couple of things here. I think it's really important that we make space for people to show up however they want to show up and we don't try to control that and that's definitely not what you're doing but I I say this from another conversation I've had with someone else about this where we say well like they're the problem they're yo-yo dieting they've got like they talk about this all the time and it's easy to blame other people when realistically like that's if that's how they want to show up or if that's the best that they can show up right now then we have to make space for that that being said, you don't have to listen to it and you don't have to have discussions around it. When I was competing, my best oldest friend, um, I don't think we spoke about competing once, the whole time, over four and a half years. She came to one show once, actually, and she brought magazines with her because she was like, I'm going to be so bored. She sat me down in her magazines and she was she could not have been less interested in anything that I was doing. Um, and... So we just never talked about it because I knew it was boring for her. So when we went, like when we went anywhere, we would just talk about normal life stuff and didn't matter if I was prep lean or off season, like it was fine. And so I think from your perspective, it's the case that you don't have to indulge in those conversations and you don't have to, in your head, think about, well, that's what their body looks like right now. Often when you're looking at other people's bodies like that, it's because you're judging your own body. So working on your own body image which you'll be doing with Georgia and your own self-worth that you'll be doing with Georgia is the most important thing you can do because when you stop judging yourself you like you stop thinking about what other people's bodies look like because most people are not thinking about bodies all the time but then setting the boundaries with your friends of like I'm really working on my relationship with food right now like it's absolutely obviously okay if you want to diet and do all this stuff but I'd rather not talk about it when we hang out it's not something that interests interests me or it's not helpful to me and then just set that boundary um, I was telling Anna the other day, actually, there's this program on Apple TV called Physical. Have you seen it, Rosalind? Have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. So I've only watched a couple of episodes. I was recommended to um, by a friend. And so I watched a couple and it's about like the Jane Fonda movement of like the 80s when people, women got into aerobics. And in the first episode, the woman in it is has an eating disorder. Um, well they call it disordered eating but she has bulimia and she all all of it is her internal narrative pretty much like most of the script is her internal narrative and it walks you through her going to parties and her judging other people in different bodies and the narrative that she has around it because of the narrative that she has in her own head about herself and I'm hoping over time it translates to when she's improved these things she stops judging other people like I'm hoping that 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 happens but it's it's really interesting if you've got Apple TV like I really recommend I mean it might be triggering for you so I would like to make that point there too um but it's a really interesting um depiction of like that relationship between the stories that you tell yourself about yourself and your own self-critical voice and how that shows up about like to other people and how you judge other people for yo-yo dieting or even notice their bodies I don't think we've ever hung out as a team and I've noticed anyone's body changed. And I can guarantee that your bodies have all changed at different points when we've hung out, but it's never been something I would notice because it's not a focus of mine on my own body. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is to like the these conversations, whatever your friends are doing are obviously 
triggering those feelings in you but I think also kind of reflect back you don't know perhaps what what's going on inside for them and what their relationship with their food and their body is to be dieting in in the first place I mean they might have a perfectly healthy relationship with food and be able to diet and not have any issues but equally there might be other stuff going on that they don't talk about there's also like this huge patriarchal thing of women pitting pitting women against each other and I and sometimes I think a lot of our struggles with that could be helpfully resolved or at least minimized by becoming more involved in activism and feminism and equality and diversity and that side of things because when you start to realize that the reason you compare yourself to other people is one yes your your own struggles but two because patriarchy has really conditioned us to compare ourselves to other people you you really makes you pissed off and you think I don't want to compare myself to other people because like this is just the way of patriarchy keeping me small and I don't mean physically small although that's probably part of it it's 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 patriarchy and I don't mean men that system that's designed to make us oppress ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people that's infuriating like you don't want to be in that situation and so sometimes I think learning about that side of stuff is quite empowering and it's like oh actually no we're all of us and I know you love your friends as person I'm sure you do we're all in this together and we're all trying to break out of this stuff together so how can we collectively work together instead of like comparing ourselves against each other okay Lynn's question oh yeah while I'm trying to create a healthy balance in my life instead of being all in or all out I do find that pushing myself with physical exercise makes me feel better, lighter, more confident. My sister commented on the fact that I exercise a lot, that sometimes messes with my head. I'm not moving my body as punishment or to work off a big dinner. I'm doing it because it makes me feel flipping fantastic. The struggle in my recovery from emotional eating is when I hear things like that, the voice in my head says, don't overdo it. Or on the flip side, if you don't exercise today, you're going to gain weight. Through what I'm learning, that voice has been quieted and I am moving my body because I want to and it makes me feel good. There's not another part to that question, so I guess it's just comments as opposed to anything else. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tough one to answer without a bit more context because I mean you're I, I obviously we don't know your sister your sister might not be doing anything really therefore kind of training or however you exercise three or four times a week might seem like a lot to her and in that instance that's like that's a perfectly healthy amount of exercise to be doing but I think I would and it sounds as though you've done a lot of progress already in terms of how you feel around movement, but I would explore a little bit more about how it feels not doing or how it would feel to take an extra rest day. And if there's like kind of feelings of anxiety, feelings of guilt, then that's where I'd be going, okay, well, maybe that's time to challenge that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Anna said and the context as well it may be I don't know if maybe you might be doing more exercise in the past and maybe your sister you know we don't know if your sister's commenting on what she sees now or maybe it's concerns she previously had and she doesn't know that you're doing this work but I'd agree with Anna and maybe ask yourself like 
how can I intuitively move my body today and maybe exploring different types of movement like dance or walking, hiking, yoga, more low impact activity as opposed to planned workouts and seeing, like as Anna said, what comes up for you there? Like, do you still feel that guilt or do you feel connected to your body? And maybe just some exploring points for you to try. Totally agree. Would echo both of those things. And then I would say on top of that, if you're just, if you don't enjoy your sister commenting on those things, then you can set a boundary with that. Similar to the last question. Um, you don't have to comment on how much exercise someone else does and you don't have to listen to those comments either. You can, you can simply ask them to say, you know, I'm working on a relationship with food. I'd rather you didn't talk about, like comment on how much exercise I do. Um, often, even if you've got a quote unquote healed relationship with food, people commenting on your body or comment on your exercise never really feels great. So it's always worthwhile, I think, having that boundary there just because it solves any issues like moving forwards people will generally respect that if they're people that you have a good relationship with um why do menopause doctors slash experts recommend lower carbs hit or plyo dr stacy sims for example so on this i was in a waiting area this morning and the receptionist was just chatting that her doctor had recommended her to go on the keto diet which is also low carb and I just was sitting there and I was like do I get involved <laughs> like or not so I I don't know is the answer like I from what I do know I used to do training in GPs um like eating disorder awareness training but also kind of like first line nutrition advice doctors can give out um, where I live locally and what I do know is doctors get very little training on nutrition so they do I think there has been in the last couple of years campaigns to increase this and when I worked in the hospital I also did training for like junior doctors but it literally was like an hour-long session at lunchtime once every six weeks so I think it's a lack of training from their part and sometimes they're expected to know all um, and and they're not because nutrition is like a specialism on its own that's why we have nutritionists and dietitians and whereas doctors are more for the medical umbrella so they are yeah, completely completely agree um I think the rationale and I'm not sure about this right I would say that the person mentioned in this I have a lot of issue with a lot of the stuff that this person says because one doctor at the front of your name, and I know this, adds a certain level of authority that's not necessarily um, attributable to that specific area that they're talking about. I could talk about biomechanics and be absolutely wrong, but because I've got a doctor at the front of my name and it's doctor of science, we'll be like, sure. Um, obviously, I'm a pro biomechanics, so it wouldn't be that, but, you know, it, something else. Um so, and a lot of the information I've seen in that context in in terms of the evidence that we have has been incorrect. Um, periods, menopause, PCOS, etc. People like to overcomplicate it because 
often when we're going through really tough periods of PMS or um, menopause, etc., we're vulnerable to misinformation because it can be quite tough. And so we're looking for something that is going to help us. And so we're a bit more vulnerable to misinformation. And I, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way, because I'd say this from a personal experience when I really struggled for a while with PMS really badly I was just like well is there anything even remotely that I can do not because I was a weak person just because I was like I'll just try anything and this type of stuff really pisses me off because that's where this is all directed at and the reason that it's directed at that is not to empower you it's to you feel like it's empowering you when you're when you're training around your menstrual cycle for example it's like oh this is I'm so in tune with my body and it's like no you're in tune with what someone told you your body is going to do that's not the same thing and it's like this fake empowerment it's not intuitive it's someone else told you that that's what empowerment looks like um and so it does piss me off i think the rationale behind it potentially and again i don't know is that so when when if you look at a 28 day menstrual cycle what happens is the first 14 days you have higher estrogen levels and then it drops towards the end of your cycle and then progesterone is slightly lower and then like increases in towards your second phase of your cycle and what happens during the second phase when estrogen is slightly lower is that you become you get a reduction in insulin sensitivity and I think that the hypoestrogen that occurs with perimenopause I think that the rationale people use and I'm not 100% on this is that that uh, contributes to reductions in insulin sensitivity and because of that you should lower your carbohydrate intake does that translate into any sort of whole body experience no is there any evidence that says low carb is helpful for menopause none at all like none at all what there is evidence for is having a slightly higher protein intake and having um, like a Mediterranean style diet rich in polyunsaturated fats and fiber and plant-based foods um, that's what we know seems to be associated with like um, better perimenopausal experiences in various ways um, and so like it's really frustrating because if you if you talk about the mechanisms of stuff I could sit here all day and talk you through muscle protein synthesis on a cellular level from the moment we ingest protein to what it does to the receptors on your cells to all of the signaling pathways I drew one out for my exam once and I still remember it to this day because I got great feedback on it and I loved it and I, and, I, and you would you would think oh my gosh she's the most intelligent person I've ever met about protein synthesis and it's just cellular stuff does that then translate to whole body stuff that's actually what matters there's always we can always find like mechanistic reasoning for stuff but a lot of the time that's what these people sell is like the mechanistic oh well because there's low estrogen this might happen but there's no evidence for it in real life and people might anecdotally say like say it was on an instagram post someone might comment and say oh well you're talking rubbish because low carbohydrate diet worked for me and it's like yeah because you were more mindful of your energy intake you stopped your carbs so you probably started eating more protein and at the same time you probably started eating more fiber but because you've been told it's because of low carbs, you're like, oh, low carb diet is the way to go. And there's always things like that. I commented on some awful post that got shared recently about some guy saying that oral contraceptives give you cancer. And he's this awful guy who's been saying he's attributed to this university in, I want to say, Sweden or somewhere. I mean, he's awful. Georgia sent me one of his posts once as well, I think. Um and I commented on it saying like this is at, like this is so woefully inaccurate telling people to come off contraception because it causes cancer. 
And even then people were replying saying, he's telling the truth. This happened to me. And it's like, that's how can you say you got cancer because of the oral contraceptive pill? It's not, it's like correlation and causation again, just because that happened. That doesn't mean it was because of that. So I think, I think there's lots of reasons why that happens. Ultimately, what it comes down to a lot of the time is status and money. And we would make a hell of a lot of money, more money if we said, do X, Y, and Z, and this will lead to fat loss and stopping you from binge eating. If we marketed like that and sold that, we would we would be in a different situation. Like we'd take over the world, which we'll obviously do anyway. But that's because we are value-based, like we have different values to that. But people like that, they are pandering to their own ego a lot of the time. Uh, Rosalind, question. So this is from one of my clients. Any tips for an afternoon energy slump? I don't want to reach for sugar, my usual go-to, or caffeine. And while I would love a mid-afternoon nap, unfortunately, that's not an option during the working week. Hmm. Okay. We did a, we did a whole thing on like energy snacks, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, a while ago. Um, let's remember what they all are. I like to do like shake my body around a little bit or like to have a wee dance in my kitchen or um, even stand outside for just like a few minutes, just walk up and down my driveway. When I used to work in an office, I would just walk to like the printer and back a couple of times or just walk down the stairs and go outside and walk back in and like taking in some deep breaths. That's probably the best thing, getting a bit of daylight if you, if that's possible. There's always an option unless you're, you know, Maybe you're, I don't know, a GP in a surgery and you're locked in a room for four hours. Maybe you can just stick your head out the window if you even have windows in your room for two minutes. Um, or maybe between people, patients, you could lie on the floor and put your legs up on the wall and like get a little bit of energy rejuvenation that way. I think that's a nice idea too. And then, I mean, realistically, afternoon snacks don't give you energy. They might, they might manage your hunger. Um, and like rejuvenate you in a sense of like oh, I've just had something to eat but the actual calorie intake of an afternoon snack doesn't really give you like a mental clarity energy that you're looking for it might give you physical energy like if you're going to the gym after or, or you've got a um a job that is quite physical but it doesn't make you like doesn't give you a caffeine hit that's for sure mm. I was just thinking as well and maybe that's something oh, we might have to put it in the Facebook group for like a playlist songs mm. that can like change your mood and perk you up a little bit mm. something that I've started doing the last couple of months I, I also my go-to is a walk outside I think like even five minutes but um on YouTube you can get like a five minute yoga nidra um so obviously you need a bit of privacy but even if you're just office by yourself a little five minute yoga nidra guide it and usually the chime a bell at the end so you won't fall asleep and it can be enough just to give you a little reset and clear the head, ready to go again. Mm. Can I just say last night, I put on, so I always use, I always use like a yoga nidra or something at nighttime. And I always have it on sleep mode on the app that I'm using right now is Insight Timer, which I love. So I always have it on sleep mode. And then last night I had it on and I went to sleep and I woke up at like 2.30 and my meditation track was halfway through and I'd been asleep for a few hours, right? And I was like, oh my God, my, my meditation, my, my phone's just played meditation again. And so obviously I'm scared of ghosts, right? So obviously I was lying in bed and I was like, 
oh my god like there's a ghost that's come in and played press play on my meditation and I was like stop being stupid and then I heard like a bang in the attic and I was like oh my god there's a ghost there's a ghost so then I text my friend in Austin who I knew would be awake and I was like because I get bad dreams a lot at the moment like nightmares I text him, I was like I've had another bad dream like my meditation's just started playing I think there's a ghost please will you just remind me of something normal and you know when you just need a reminder that life is like just a normal life and it's just the middle of the night so then we got that and I went back to sleep and then I checked my app my sleep cycle thing this morning like it tracks like sounds and stuff and I realized my meditation I'll be playing from the moment I fell asleep all the way through till two o'clock because I hadn't put it on sleep so it was just repeating itself over and over again <laughs> that's why I'd come back on and I was like oh like one I can't believe it doesn't just switch off at the end of your meditation track and two why did I not check that before but three why am I always so scared of why do I always immediately go to the fact that I think there's a ghost in my house it's <laughs> ludicrous every like I don't know what's going on with my nightmares at the moment the other night when I fell asleep on my sofa when I got back from Austin that day I fell asleep at 6 p.m and I woke up to a nightmare that there was a man in my kitchen holding a gun to my face and I had to talk myself through this was the way that I was going to die and then I woke up and I was like oh obviously being in Texas where they all have guns I need to sort myself out I don't know why all of these awful dreams are coming out I'm sure there's a reason for it I just I'm probably in denial about it (laughs) that'd be that'd be some juicy like I love hearing like what dreams mean that'd be (laughs) what does it mean when you keep dreaming about murder and ghosts I'd say there's some sort of suppression answer there that I just I'm not ready to deal with right now (laughs) I mean potentially but let's stick with yoga Okay. How to be okay with being in a bigger body when you've decided fat loss isn't right for you at the moment? Mm, I actually got asked this question yesterday on a discovery call with a client. And we had I a dis- mean, it's a pretty amazing decision to come to that you're putting your relationship with food and your health first. And so I think try and find some empowerment in that because it's not an easy decision to make. Um, And I think when you are having challenging days, like reconnecting with your why, why are you doing this? Why it's important for you right now, getting clear on your values as always. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a really challenging decision to make, especially like, there's going to be reminders coming up probably why you feel the need to be in a smaller body at times. But as Anna said, like thinking about all the things that you'll gain and that might be headspace, confidence to try new things, confidence to meet new people and hopefully an improvement in mental health because you won't always be sacrificing your mental health to be in a smaller body. Yeah. And I think challenging any sort of beliefs you have around being in a different size body and what that actually means. Like, okay, so you're in a bigger body, but what does that actually mean to you? And is that reality or is that a story that you've told yourself? So are you exhibiting or living through like some sort of internalized weight bias where you think, well, I'm in a larger body, that must mean that I am less successful or lazy or some sort of or other horrible narrative that's been pushed on us that's just not true um so really looking at 
what stories am I telling myself about that and journaling on that and asking yourself like is this factor is this thought how can I challenge this thought or how can I let this thought go and then again making sure like that you're wearing comfortable clothes and that you're managing your body check-in and that you're managing the environment that you put yourself in around um social media and the conversations that you have with friends and um really just looking at am I setting myself up to be okay with this or am I putting myself in a situation that is going to challenge how I feel about my body every day? Um, Best advice for wanting to stay lean and strong but not grow bigger, bulkier muscles, especially in my upper body and arms. Reference, this client is an ex-competitive swimmer. I was going to say it's quite hard to get bulky but mm-hmm. I guess with swimmer like I would never say swimmers are bulky but like you obviously have to be super powerful for swimming um, and you've probably been training for a long time so you don't need that type of patronizing advice for me <laughs> that's the first thing um realistically the only way that you can stop yourself from building muscle if, is is not training to failure managing your overall training volume and managing your protein intake so what you could do is if it's specifically upper body stuff you could potentially like manage your training volume on upper days. And, and if you're working with that, I'm sure you're doing this, but managing your training volume and maybe on upper days, you consume slightly less protein. And it, and it seems so trivial, but just not, it's hard to not consistently hit your anabolic, um, like your threshold four times a day or four times a day when you've done it consistently. Realistically, it's not going to make that much of a difference, but those are really the only two ways that you can do it is by not training to failure, managing your overall volume and reducing protein intake. I mean, that's, I, I think it's quite easy to lose. I think it's quite easy to lose muscle over prolonged periods of time if you just reduce your training volume quite a bit. Um, I say that, obviously, Anna, like, you know this, like I don't train back and I, I still feel like anytime I train back, I'm like, why is my back still so muscly? Like, I never train it. Just instantly bulked up. Yeah. <laughs> like how does that even happen so so it's not like super easy but that's that's really all you can do Mm, yeah I I think if it's if it's an area that you're conscious of as well like like I'm not saying you're you're self-conscious with your back but like if it's an area that you're conscious on you're going to be more aware of it so even if you kind of aren't doing any I was gonna say like obviously even kind of doing deadlifts and stuff you'll be like oh probably checking out upper body I do I'm like fuck yeah Um, (laughs) but if it's an area that you're aware of like just call yourself out like if you're if you are doing everything um reducing uh training volume just be mindful of of body checking I guess in that sense yeah and I think on that note too actually something that is probably underrated is getting bras that fit you and I know that sounds really oh weird. yes don't doesn't it make such a difference like I think knowing like getting a proper measurement of your back size so that your bras fit you properly so that you're not uncomfortable I mean bras are generally not the most comfortable thing in the world but like so that you're not uncomfortable in your bras when you do wear them having a tight bra or a bra that fits you in the back but doesn't fit you on the boobs. It's one of the most uncomfortable things in terms of how you feel about your upper body and like the way that you even your posture. So go to like 
I'd say Victoria's Secret, but I know there's a lot of scandal around them in general these days. Um, <laughs> but go to a shop that does bra measurements and get measured for a bra properly too. Sounds very trivial, but it can be quite impactful. Okay, this is George's question. Tips for dealing with sadness as your favourite food changes its meaning from comfort and delicious to just a taste sensation. I know I'm privileged to have this, but I just feel sad that chocolate doesn't numb me like it used to. This isn't uncommon, you know. This mm. is we've. I I actually was a bit slow in reading that question because I thought have we had this question before because we've had a similar question to this before. Um, super common, and it's okay to say yes. I recognise my privilege, but still, for to still feel sad about it, it's totally valid. Um, I think I don't know what you think. I'm interested to hear what you think. Part of me thinks you might have to grieve that I say relationship as a loose term I know you don't have a relationship to chocolate but relationship with food right so I think part of it is grieving that coping mechanism and grieving that that is not something that you have in your repertoire anymore um which is fantastic but it doesn't mean that it's not sad it's like when you have a breakup with a really toxic 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 partner and you know it's the best thing in the world that you break up with them but they've been in your life for three years and you love them and you still have to grieve that and even if it was an abusive relationship in some way it felt safe so you have to grieve that and although that's an extreme example and we're talking about chocolate it's the same sort of thing of like emotionally ing or numbing with food feels safe to you and felt safe to you for so long and it might have been a protector for you from your feelings for so long that it's important to grieve that it's more than just like the sadness of not feeling numb when you eat chocolate anymore it's it's more than that it's the relationship overall like what that was bringing for you I think yeah I was I was gonna say it's perhaps not the chocolate itself but the the purpose that it served and I guess kind of focusing on all the positives that are coming from the work that you're doing in the sense that you are opening yourself up to feeling all sorts of feelings now because you're not using that chocolate to numb and yeah sometimes those feelings can be really really tough but it also means that you feel all the good stuff even more, which is fantastic. And like you said, the fact that you can still have chocolate and you can have it in a mindful way. So you still get that taste and satisfaction and you can stop when you've had enough. That's like, I mean, I, I was having a conversation with someone earlier about like those, and we talk about them all the time, the the small wins that like for some people that might not have struggled they don't bat an eyelid but we know how important those things are and we need to celebrate more of that I think mm, agree Rosalind question okay this is one of my clients <clears throat> sorry advice for moments where you know what you should do 
should do, but feel mobile, i.e. you know you're anxious and wanting to binge because of work and taking 30 minutes to breathe would help you, but you keep going. So you're aware of what you need to do, you just don't do it. First of all, show yourself some compassion because it's natural to go to the easiest learned route that feels safe and that feels familiar. And that for you might be binge eating or food. And so it's totally normal for you in the situation to feel like you go towards that. And so give yourself some grace and say, okay, I recognize that this is quite a normal reaction because this is the the habit loop in my brain that that I'm going down. Um, actually, my email for tomorrow on my on my email list is actually about this. It's the the path of least resistance. Um, and what you're doing right now is you're building a new pathway. And luckily, our brains are amazing at and malleable, and we can change the pathway loops in our heads. So if that's the first thing. Um, and then I think part of it is. What's amazing is that you're recognizing it. So you've done the hard part of putting a pause in there. That's actually the hardest part. So that's fantastic. Um, And then I think part of it is, okay, I honestly still to this day for myself use the question, how do I want to feel tomorrow morning? I just think it's, it's so instant. It's so, you're not thinking about your future self. Well, you are, but it's, it's still you. It's you in a couple of hours. It's not you in six months, in a year's time. I don't really there's evidence around um like we see our future self in six months or in a year as like a different person we see them as a stranger whereas tomorrow you see still see it as you getting up and so I like to do that and then think how do I want to feel tomorrow morning and it becomes less about what you quote unquote should do and it becomes more about okay well this is what I want to do because this is what I want to feel like Mm. yeah I can well I can relate to the anxious feelings but I can relate to knowing what you should be doing and or what you'd want to be doing because shoulding um and yeah not wanting to and I for accountability sent Amelia a photo yesterday because I showed up to the gym because I'd made a promise to myself that I was going to go three times this week and the day it got away from me and it was at peak time and I was like do you know what kept that question in mind and for me it's what's the most nourishing thing right now and that was to go to the gym and yeah I'll thank myself for going I mean I didn't at the time it was hell it was so busy but once I was out there I was like do you know what I did something great for myself big pat on the back mm-hmm. yeah. <clears throat> yeah and I agree with everything you both say and this client I know she's working really hard and I think she's just really struggling to show herself kindness and compassion but hopefully maybe hearing that from from not just my voice that'll maybe like ring ring through to her a bit more because it's hard compassion is so hard especially if you hear it from the same person all the time and I find myself saying oh I know it's a cliche but be kind to yourself and I'm like but it is a cliche but it's also the answer to so much kindness in any sense is the answer to so much and we all often think I'd love to be a kinder person and we think about it in terms of other people and it's like okay, well, we can't consistently keep being kinder to other people, but still think that we can be assholes to ourselves. Like, that doesn't that doesn't work. The it's rule not- doesn't apply to yourself, though, remember? <laughs> I've told myself that for far too long, my friend. <laughs> We're moving on. Um, okay, let's do one last question. Anna, go for it. 
Um, I've heard a lot this past week, both good and bad, about the recent comment that 16% protein intake is optimal. Why do people have such different opinions as to what is and what isn't optimal as both sides were spouting scientific research to back up their claims? Well, that's a different exercise, <laughs> different exercise, different question. I'll stop there. <laughs> I've not heard that. Have you guys heard that? Yeah, I think it's Aaliyah's podcast that was out. Oh. A podcast with a new, okay. Um, I say names. Do we do that here? Like we're, we're not slating anyone. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can see the podcast because it's important to know. Yeah. Uh, um, CEO podcast with Stephen Bartlett, and I think it's he's actually head of the British Dietetic Association. Oh, um, Giles Yeo. Yes, I think it's. I think I've listened to the full podcast, but I've heard sound bites. Um, and I think that's where the sixteen percent is coming from interesting i'm always mindful of these like i don't like to listen to the sound bites before i comment on the overall information because you never know right like how it's been picked apart so when we comment on this we'll do it generally but that's useful i'm gonna listen to that because he i i rate a lot of the stuff that he's done in the past um um you better be careful what you say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know where the 16 percent proteins come from it's rubbish it might work out as like roughly 100 grams of protein a day I, I can't think 400 calories no it wouldn't because mm. if you eat 100 grams of cat no that's not 16 percent even remotely um what would hold on i'm just going to do a little bit of maths just for one little second say you ate 2500 calories a day right times 16 mm. percent is so it's 0.16 400 calories oh it is Divided by four equals 100 grams. Oh, what is 100 grams of protein? Okay, great maths from all of us. Um, <laughs> technically, we kind of, sort of, ish. Are, it's not far out. And I think sometimes people get hung up on like the minutiae of um, like, oh, should it be 100 grams or 120 grams or 100 grams or 90 grams? Realistically, that doesn't really make much difference. Um, I don't like to use percentages. Percentages of diets can be quite misleading because people have such varied calorie intakes um so I don't really like to use them I like to use like per in sport nutrition especially we use um, grams per kilogram body mass um um I think the problem is with research is that you can find research to back up anything you want and not many people are good at being critical of research. And if there's one thing my PhD taught me, it's nothing about what I actually did my PhD on, it's how to be critical of things. And even then, I'm good at being critical to some degree of like of nutrition research. But if you give me a piece of, I don't know, um, engineering research, I wouldn't know how to be critical of that. Um, so the problem is, is that you can always find research to back up anything that you want to say. And so if people have an agenda or they identify with a certain type of um school of thinking they will find research to back up what they're saying and they'll argue with it and i haven't seen the research behind this but his logic i imagine it's it's the research that we're all aware of in terms of optimal for health i imagine and i don't know how he's put it into 16 percent. maybe he said when he works with people or has in the past it usually worked out at roughly 16 percent of their calories so that's what he goes with maybe it's that and then that's more of an experience thing based on the, the evidence that we do have um and it's really confusing for people and i and i and it's crappy because there's only so much that you, that 
you can listen to me you can listen to you guys and you can listen to someone else like there's no reason why you would think well they know more than x person knows more than y you have to learn to trust the person and that's really tough so i think i think it's usually personal agendas that that's people's personal identity types and say for example it was us right and our entire ethos is built around improving your relationships with food so we have an agenda when we're looking at research to be like oh well the way that we do mindfulness is associated with improved body image and all of these things and it is right in the research it is but when i see research that disputes it i'm like oh that's interesting and i have to call myself and be like nope read it figure out why it's disputed it because if that if it, loads of research came out now that was like, do you know what mindfulness actually is really detrimental? They're like, oh shit, and we'd have to change everything that we did, and that's the right way of doing it, right? That's being comfortable with being wrong and things changing. But a lot of people, especially with their egos, are not comfortable with that, so they double down on things and find anything that suits their narrative. And I. Just maybe on the topic of that podcast, because I know recently they've had a lot of guests that have got books out at the minute of nutrition. And it's just being mindful that these people are promoting their their latest product. So they are. So they're going to have stats that are going to sell or stats that are really going like, to draw you in. And whoever asked this question, I'm sure they're working with Anna. So, you know, Anna's going to be able to, maybe you're on 100 grams of protein anyway, and you can see have you seen the benefits of that or not? And that's something you can discuss with Anna, like, do you need to up that or not? But it might be that you're on the 16%, but it's just because Anna hasn't said 16% in inverted commas. Um, but yeah, I think it's a lot of, um, I think there's a people, controversy sells headlines at mm. the minute. And yeah. a lot, it's just a lot of podcast information at the minute that's just really problematic and I'm not saying this him I'm not blaming a specific podcast and I'm also not blaming this specific guest at all um but there just really is a lot and it's so hard to navigate but we could try great question mm-hmm. and great knowledge that that's where it came from okay thanks everyone for your great questions keep them coming in thank you both so much bye bye <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you did, please do feel free to like, share, subscribe and review. And if you would like to chat to me, then you can find details of my Instagram in the show notes.